At Covenant Reformed Baptist Church here in Barbados, we've been making our way through John's Gospel on Sunday mornings. And this morning we're at John 3, 22-36. Actually, we would have been here a few weeks ago, but we paused our series so I could preach this section today to open this conference. Because I believe that this portion of Scripture is extremely relevant to what we're dealing with this week. Our conference theme is, What is a Biblical Church? And the exploration of that theme could easily pit one denomination against another in a simplistic way. For example, it could go like this, What is a Biblical Church? Some over here say, A Biblical Church is a Pentecostal Church. Some over there say a biblical church is a Wesleyan church. And some over here say, no, a biblical church is a Baptist church. And so on and so forth. You get the idea. When we ask, what is a biblical church? That very question could provoke or could prompt such a conversation where we just draw lines in the sand, we pick teams, and then we battle one another for who's the real biblical churches among us. We could begin waving the flag of our theological tribe and say, that is a biblical church. This is a biblical church. We, the Reformed, the Calvinists, the Baptists, we are biblical churches. And that wouldn't exactly be right. As we consider the theme of this conference, what is a biblical church? As we consider that theme, the passage before us today, John 3, 22 to 36, will help us set the right tone for the conference. I have two points to make this morning, both drawn from this text. And the first point is this. A biblical church is one that seeks the glory of Christ, the increase of To use the language of this passage, the increase of Christ over the increase of self. A biblical church is a church that seeks the increase of Christ over the increase of self. Let me explain and expand. In John 3, 22 to 36, this passage that we just read, we read about a dispute. Between John's disciples and a Jew, presumably a religious leader of some sort. And the dispute is over purification, verse 25. We're not privy to the exact details of the dispute, but the resulting concern of John's disciples coming out of that dispute is that people are going to Jesus instead of going to John. And they perceive this as a problem. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. They perceive this as a problem. But based on what the reader of John's gospel knows, from John chapter 1 and John chapter 2, which I think most of us in this room would be familiar with. Certainly those at CRBC are familiar with it because we've been preaching through it over the last couple of months. Based on what the reader knows from John chapter 1 
and John chapter 2. When we come to this perceived problem in John chapter 3 and verse 26, oh no, everybody is going to Jesus. Is this a real problem? Or is it a merely perceived problem? A number of us in this room are pastors. When pastors get together, one of the things that we like to do is share our burdens with one another. Pray with one another. Pray for one another. How's it going in your church? And inappropriate ways that respect confidentiality and privacy and so on and so forth. Sometimes we take advice from one another about different problems that are going on in churches. We sometimes, it's not necessarily soliciting advice or offering advice, but it's just, as the Bible says, weeping with those who weep. We help one another, bear one another's burdens. If a bunch of pastors got together, and you don't have to be a pastor to appreciate this. If a bunch of pastors got together, and one of them said, with a downcast look and a heavy heart, our church is having some tremendous difficulty. Real trials. We are growing too fast. And we don't have enough seats for everyone. Uh, I just don't know how we're going to make it through. Is that, is that really a tremendous difficulty? Is that, is that really serious trials? Or is it merely a perceived problem? You understand that a perceived problem is not always the same thing as a real problem. Someone who's of the real type A, like to have everything organized personality, might, might be really stressed that there are not enough seats for all the people coming to Christ. But if his brother pastors are uh, wise, they're not going to mourn with him. They're going to say, give your head a shake, man. This is a good thing. People are coming to Christ. It's the least of your worries that you don't have enough seats. Let those who can stand, stand for now. Until you can afford to buy some more seats. This is not a real problem. This is just a perceived problem. Likewise, if people are going to Jesus instead of John, it's not a real problem. It's a perceived problem. Remember, Jesus has already been introduced to us in John's Gospel as the Word who was in the beginning with God. And the Word who was in the beginning, God Himself. He is the Creator. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. He is the light of man. He is the true light. He's superior to Moses, giving fuller grace and truth than the old covenant provided. He's the one who baptizes not merely with water, but with the Holy Spirit. He is like Jacob's ladder, the connection between heaven and earth by which God comes to be with mankind for our good. 
He is the Lord whom the Jews had been seeking, who suddenly came into his temple as refiner's fire and as fuller's soap. He is in fact not just the cleanser of the temple, but he himself is a truer and better temple. It is in him and through him that true worship may and must occur in the new covenant. That old temple has been destroyed, but a new one has been raised up after three days. Jesus is like the serpent lifted up in the wilderness in ancient times to whom man may look and live. He is the one through whom By believing and receiving, we may become children of God. Even as our passage, John 3, 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. All of this, everything I just said, comes from what we've covered in John's Gospel so far. From John 1, verse 1, all the way up to this section that we're dealing with today. So when John's disciples come to him and say, He who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. The horror of it. Everybody is going to Jesus. This is not a real problem. This is merely a perceived problem. And John answers to that effect. Look at chapter 3, verses 27 and following. John says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. This seems to be in its context, not a comment on the noetic effects of sin. That is the effects of sin on our ability to understand and perceive truth. Rather, it's a statement about God's sovereignty in giving to each the status and role in history that he wills. And God has willed that John should be, as chapter 1 says, not the light. He himself was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. And John is content with that role. He's content with submission to God's will. That he play second fiddle. That he serve another. That he bear witness about another. That he point away from himself to another. John goes on from here to reiterate that from the beginning he has only ever claimed to have a secondary role. That's been John's claim from the beginning. That's in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. Then in verse 29, John provides an illustration of his relationship to Jesus. John is like the friend of the bridegroom. Or in modern parlance, we might say, the best man. John is like the best man. It's fitting, he says, that the groom should have the bride. It's the way it ought to be. Commentator Gordon Keddy says candles are put out after the electricity comes back on. Turn your flashlight off. Turn your torchlight off. The electricity's back on. It's just the way it should be. John Calvin draws a similar analogy and says, reminds us that in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2, Jesus is called the Son 
S-U-N, Son of Righteousness. And explains that now that the sun has risen, John, who is a lesser light, must give way, even as the stars give way to the sunrise every morning. It's just the way it should be. Look, the bride's coming down the aisle. She's not coming down the aisle for the best man. Look, in the middle of the day, you don't look up and see the starry sky. You don't walk around with candles or or torchlights or flashlights when the electricity is running through your walls. It's just the way it ought to be that Jesus received people to Him. That everybody goes to Jesus instead of John. It's just the way it should be. John says, therefore, now that the groom is getting his bride, the people going to him, receiving him, believing in his name, looking and living, just as people looked at that serpent so long ago and lived. Now that people are looking at Jesus and living, now that Jesus is getting his bride, Those for whom He died. Now that people are going to Him. John says, This joy of mine is now complete. Your best man on your wedding day shouldn't be standing there thinking, Man, I wish she was mine. If so, you don't know him as well as you thought you did. <laughs> Listen, when, when the pastor or the officiant says to the groom, you may kiss the bride, that should be a happy moment, not only for the bride and groom, but that should be a happy moment for the best man. That's John's attitude here. Ah, this joy of mine is now complete. Everybody's going to Jesus. And then John utters a most memorable phrase. He must increase, but I must decrease. John seeks the increase of Christ over himself. Of course, no Christian in his right mind would hesitate to affirm, at least in principle, that we as individual Christians ought to seek the increase of Christ over ourselves. Who's going to argue with that? We ought not to live self-centered lives. We ought not to seek our own glory. And yet how well do we seek the increase of Christ and the decrease of ourselves as individuals day by day? How well do you structure your time in such a way so as to serve the increase of Christ? How well do you prioritize the outflow of money from your bank account in such a way so as to serve the increase of Christ? How well do you account for the increase of Christ in your decision-making processes and in the setting of your priorities? How well do I? Certainly, we're all indicted here to some extent as we measure ourselves against John. 
we ought this morning as individuals to recommit to embracing John's paradigm with greater zeal, greater fervency, greater humility, greater love for our Lord and Savior. Oh, that we would embrace it afresh. He must increase. Well, I must decrease. And we ought to recommit to John's paradigm on a corporate level also. And here's where we tie in the theme of the conference. As I said at the beginning, our conference theme is, what is a biblical church? And the exploration of that theme could easily pit denominations against one another. What is a biblical church? A reformed church. An Arminian church. A Calvinist church. uh, Whatever, you name it. The conversation could easily just go like that. We could throw, we're most of us in this room. I hope we have some. You're welcome among us. I want you to know. If you're not a Calvinist, you're not reformed, you're skeptical, you're resistant, I want you to know you're welcome among us this week and I want you to ask your questions and I want to get to know you and fellowship with you and I hope that you have an enjoyable and good week among us. But let's be honest, most of us here are Calvinists. And it would be easy to just throw red meat. <laughs> right? Oh yeah, the Reformed churches, the Calvinist churches, those are the biblical ones. The Baptists. The conversation could easily go like that. And the conference could easily go like that. We could just wave our flag, say, we, what is a biblical church? Well, it's us. We are biblical church. John's example ought to rebuke us here if that, would, if that were the way we would go with it. If that's what goes on in your heart. John's example ought to rebuke you here. Listen, what does the denomination matter? What does the tribe matter? What does it matter if people aren't coming to us so long as they are going to Christ? Not only I, but we must decrease. And he must increase. Our priority mustn't be ultimately to make people reformed. To make people Calvinists. To make people Baptists. Oh, that Christ would increase. Oh, that Christ would receive His bride. We are like John. Groomsmen. Playing second fiddle. Our job is to see Jesus get His bride. How would you feel if the Pentecostal church down the road was seeing people genuinely converted? How would you feel if the Nazarene church down the road was seeing people genuinely converted? How would you feel if the Anglican church down the road or any other denomination, genuine, a genuine gospel preaching church, whatever else their errors might be, what if they were seeing people genuinely converted? And God's Spirit was monergistically giving them the new birth 
Even though they didn't know that it was monergistic. And people were being drawn to Christ. Being born from above in those churches. How would you feel? If your heart response would be anything other than hallelujah. Listen, you've got some repenting to do. If that were the case, it would show that you would have lost sight of the big picture. A biblical Christian is one that seeks the increase of Christ over himself as an individual. And a biblical church is one that seeks the increase of Christ over the increase of itself. That's the first point of my message today taken from this text. We must not lose the forest for the trees. We must not lose sight of the big picture. It's not about the increase of our denomination or our tribe, ultimately. It's about the increase of Christ. That's the first point taken from our text this morning. But remember I said I have two points. And here's the second one. The increase of Christ entails, among other things, submission to Christ's authority. Our passage goes on from verse 30. To paint a portrait of Jesus as the one who comes from above and is above all. He is from heaven. That's also in verse 31. And he bears witness to what he has seen and heard in heaven. Verse 32. That is what he knows firsthand as opposed to knowing by revelation. These qualifications make him the consummate revealer of God and God's will. He is above all as revealer of God's will. He's come from heaven. He's seen and heard what goes on there. He doesn't know secondhand because it's been revealed to him. He knows firsthand because he is the word who was in the beginning with God and who was God. And he's come down from heaven. He is above all as revealer. Verse 34 and following, expand on this point. Jesus is sent by God. He utters the very words of God. Verse 34. Who else would we listen to? Who else would we give ear to? Whose words would we prioritize above he who has been sent from God and utters the very words of God? Who would we listen to above the one who is above all? Who is from heaven and bears witness to what he has seen and heard there? Jesus is not only the Savior, though he certainly is that. We sang about that, we read about that, we've talked about that already in the service today. Jesus is the Savior. But He's not only the Savior, He is the consummate revealer of God and God's will. In keeping with the Father's voice, which 
thundered from heaven at the transfiguration. We should listen to Him. Listen to Him. Listen to Jesus. He is not just one more prophet, another Moses or Elijah. Remember at the transfiguration? Let's build three tents because there's three important people here. And the Father says, He is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. He's not just another Moses and Elijah. He is loved by the Father in a unique way. Verse 35. All things have been given into His hand. Verse 35. Unlike Moses or Elijah or any other prophet, He is the one who gives eternal life. Rejecting Him leads to the wrath of God. As Simeon said in Luke 2 and verse 34, He is appointed for the rise and fall of many. If He must increase, what would it look like for the one described here in this passage to increase? Surely, among other things, it looks like the submission of His people to Him. We see in verse 36... Obey, obey the Son. We see in verse 33, receive His testimony. This consummate revealer of God, receive His testimony, obey Him. You want to seek Christ's increase above yourself? Good. You want to seek Christ's increase above your tribe, your denomination? Good. What does that look like? It looks like receiving His testimony. Obeying Him. Because He's above all, He speaks of what He's seen and heard. He speaks the very words of God and so on. Everything it says about Jesus in this passage. You want to see Christ increase? Okay. He's the one who's above all. The consummate revealer. Obey Him. Receive His testimony. If we are to see Christ's increase then, we must be concerned not only with praying the sinner's prayer, but with obedience to Christ. Not only with trusting His cross work, shifting your confidence, as I said earlier in the service, away from your own law-keeping, to place confidence in Christ's law-keeping. Not only must we do that, If we are to seek Christ's increase. But we must also receive His testimony. Personally, as individuals, we must be concerned with receiving Christ's testimony and obeying. And this is not a red letter Christian kind of thing. Where we obey only the actual words of Jesus as recorded for us in the Gospels. There are people out there saying that, you know. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about receiving His testimony and obeying Him. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 22. It says, After this, Jesus and His disciples went into the Judean countryside, and He remained there with them and was baptizing. Who was baptizing? Jesus. Right? But now look at chapter 4 and verse 2. 
Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. You see, the baptizing that the disciples did is considered the baptizing that Jesus did because they baptized with his authority. They baptized with his power and authority vested in them to do so. And so in chapter 3 and verse 22, it says, the disciple, it says Jesus baptized. And in chapter 4 and verse 2, it says, well, technically he did it, but it was his disciples. So it was counted as his. So it is. So it is with the teaching that the disciples did. Not just the baptizing that the disciples did, but the teaching that the disciples did. These apostles were vested with authority not only to baptize in Jesus' name, but to teach and to rule the church in Jesus' name. And so receiving Christ's testimony, obeying Him, seeking that Christ might increase, looks like receiving and obeying, receiving His testimony and obeying Him. And that means all of Scripture. All the teaching that his apostles did, who taught and ruled in his name. A biblical church, like a biblical Christian, needs to obey all that Christ has commanded. And not in a reductionistic way. Like only those letters printed in red. But everything that those who taught with his authority taught. The apostles and prophets. All of God's word. The whole book. A church then... is not increasing Christ insofar as they are ignorant of, confused about, or rebellious toward Christ's testimony. A church is not increasing Christ insofar as, for whatever reason, they are disobedient to the Word of God. What's true for the individual is true for the group. Individuals must seek Christ's increase, so groups must seek Christ's increase. Individuals must receive Christ's testimony and obey. Groups must receive Christ's testimony and obey. Biblical Christians seek Christ's increase. Biblical churches seek Christ's increase. Biblical Christians obey Jesus. Biblical churches Obey Jesus. So as we think about the increase of Christ and the theme of our conference, what is a biblical church? On the one hand, we need to avoid denominationalism or tribalism, as if the tribe or denomination were ultimate. It's all about the Reformed Baptists. On the one hand, we need to avoid doing that. We must be concerned, on the other hand though, 
with obedience to Christ. We must be concerned that we ourselves as individuals and as churches are obedient to Christ. That we receive His testimony. All of it. Everything that the apostles and prophets taught us. Who taught and ruled with His authority in His name. We must be concerned that we ourselves do that. As individuals and churches. But we also ought to be concerned that others are increasingly obedient to Christ. Increasingly receiving His testimony. Insofar as we are able to influence them. That's what seeking the increase of Christ would mean, right? We can't be ambivalent about individuals who profess faith in Christ living in insubordination to Christ or living in confusion about what it is that Christ has commanded. Neither can we, if we're really seeking the increase of Christ, be apathetic about churches that are confused about Christ's testimony or churches that are rebellious or hostile toward Christ's testimony. How can we seek the increase of Christ but not care about that? So, it's not ultimately about increasing our tribe, our association, our denomination, or whatever. But it is about demarcating truth from error. It is about demarcating obedience from disobedience. It is about demarcating orthodoxy from heterodoxy or even heresy. And it is about demarcating holiness from sin. And listen, sometimes that organizes us into tribes or denominations or associations or whatever. So it's not about being reformed per se, or Baptist or Methodist or whatever else, but it is about trying to bring our doctrine and our practice in line with the teaching of Christ. It is about receiving the testimony of Christ as he himself personally testified and as he testified through those who taught in his name, who testified in his name. It is about that. Whatever labels people use to describe that. Of course, this week we'll be examining the helpfulness of creeds and confessions in keeping a church biblical. It's a blessing and a help to be rooted in a biblical tradition or denomination or tribe or whatever you want to call it. Our church, as I think you all know, holds to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, as do the Antiguan churches over which Pastor Jonas is the presiding elder, and he will be teaching this session on confessionalism tomorrow morning, God willing. So I'm not anti-confessional. I'm not no creed but the Bible. 
for reasons that I think will become clear tomorrow. But what if Christ, the consummate revealer, says something, either directly in the Gospels or through his apostles in the later epistles or through the prophets of the Old Testament that contradicts my denomination or my tribe? What if in studying the scripture I realize the 1689 is wrong? Let me tell you what I would do. I would drop the 1689 Confession of Faith, the title Reformed or Calvinist or Baptist or whatever else I presently am, faster than you could draw a hot dish that came straight out of the oven that you picked up with your bare hands. You know why I would do it? Because that is what would most honor Christ as the consummate revealer. I would have to admit I had been wrong. I would have some public embarrassment for having been an outspoken advocate for the 1689 Confession, for that theology which is called Reformed Baptist. I would have some discomfort. But to hang on to these things in spite of Christ's testimony to the contrary would be to seek the increase of myself, my denomination, my tribe, whatever you want to call it. It would be to seek the increase of Reformed Baptists above the increase of Christ. If it was that Christ said one thing and the 1689 said another. To seek the increase of Christ involves, among other things, reception of who Christ is according to the scriptures and the reception of Christ's testimony, as John says in John 3.33. At the outset of this conference, I want to ask you, each and every one of you, are you willing in principle to do the same? Whatever denomination, tradition, tribe you're from. What if Christ says something, either directly in the Gospels, or through His apostles in the later epistles, or through the prophets of the Old Testament, that contradicts your denomination, that contradicts your tribe? Are you prepared to seek the increase of Christ? By receiving His testimony... By submitting to his authority, even if it means the decrease of yourself personally, some difficulty for you personally, even if it means the decrease of your present denomination or your present tribe. Brothers and sisters, on the one hand, seeking the increase of Christ ought to guard us against denominationalism. Missing the big picture, being so preoccupied with the growth of reformed churches or Calvinistic churches or whatever, that we forget that ultimately it's not about us, but it's about Him. On the other hand, seeking the increase of Christ ought to prepare us to acknowledge that doctrine does matter, that practice does matter. And that it is worth seeking to reform one's church or denomination. It is worth it for Christ's increase. 
in order that he might be honored as consummate revealer to seek to reform one's church or one's denomination. And it is worth it in certain cases even to leave one's church or denomination for another when the testimony of Christ is not received and submission to Christ is not offered. May God help us all through this week to examine ourselves first and foremost. Are we as individuals receiving Christ's testimony? Submitting to His authority and thereby seeking His increase. Consider then also, especially the pastors in the room, are our churches receiving Christ's testimony? Submitting to His authority and thereby seeking His increase. Whatever the cost to self. If not, may God help us in this room with the necessary reformation. And may God help us all throughout this week to consider how we may helpfully engage Christians and pastors in other churches. Not ultimately with a view to increase our tribe or denomination, but with a view to increase Christ. How can we promote not ultimately Calvinism, per se, or the Reformed tradition, per se. But biblical doctrine and practice, because what the Bible says is what Christ says. And He must increase, and we must decrease. Call it what you will, when you find out what the Bible says. Call it what you will. Reformed, Calvinist, Arminian, Pentecostal, Wesleyan, Anglican, whatever label you want to throw on it, throw on it. May we all be resolved to believe and practice whatever the Bible teaches. Whatever that may be. Whatever label it goes by in this world we live in. Whatever banner it flies under in this world that we live in. May we all be prepared to receive Christ's testimony. To obey Him. And to... May we all resolve to influence others to do the same. Not so that our tribe or denomination may increase, but so that Christ may increase. So that His identity as the one who is from above and above all, the consummate revealer, will be honored by the reception of His testimony. If that makes more Reformed Baptists, so be it. But that's incidental to our sight our central priority, which is that Christ may increase. May the increase of Christ be our heart's aim this whole week through. 